chapter is about three wonderful women. And um, in long Christian history, I think you could make a case that women have generally been better than blokes. There have been so many Christian movements like this that have just seen a need in the society they're in, have worked out how to translate the message of the Gospels and have taken it from there. They do this for the love of Jesus. So it's worth, I think they're worth hearing about. Well, welcome to uh, the Ask podcast again with my friend Greg Sheridan, who's incredibly busy uh, sorting out Ukraine and Russia and everything else. And I thought I'd bring him on to some more important stuff. So, Greg, uh, welcome. And let me begin. We're going to look at chapter eight, Christians who keep giving. And you begin with a quote from Mother Teresa. Now, Christopher Hitchens wasn't over fond of Mother Teresa. Uh, what are your thoughts on all of that? Well, David, uh, it's great to be with you again, and what joy to think about something other than military conflict. Um, I had some sympathy for Christopher Hitchens as a person and as a journalist, but the low point of his career was his attack on Mother Teresa. And uh, um, this was Hitchens, I think, uh, trying to be his most contrarian. You know, what's it's a sort of a pathetic thing that journalists sometimes do to to attract attention. You know, you find the most popular thing in the world and then you spit in its face. Mm -hmm. So I've seen Mother Teresa's nuns at work in a number of different parts of the world. Many of them have been killed for their faith. Many of them have been killed serving the poor. Uh, they live lives of uh, poverty and service. In the streets of Calcutta, they deal with the most unwanted people and they try to help them. And their ethos is that they respond to them in the way that a Christian should respond to any person in travail, in the way that a friend should respond. But apparently Mother Teresa's facilities that she's built didn't meet Christopher Hitchens' high standards. So he wrote a book attacking Mother Teresa. He also disagreed with her theology, obviously, and he disagreed with her um, policy positions on issues such as pro-life. You know, he thought it was, mm -hmm. you know, atheists like Hitchens always think the trouble with the world is there are too many and two wicked human beings. And Mother mm -hmm. Teresa found that every human being was an expression of God and God's grace and had an immortal soul and a unique claim to dignity. I remember many years ago reading uh, Malcolm Muggeridge's book on Mother Teresa. And one moment in it that stayed with me was when she discovered a tiny baby newly born in Calcutta, so tiny, so such wretched circumstances, you'd hardly believe the baby could exist. And she picked it up and smiled with joy and said, see, there's life in her, there's life in her. Mother Teresa saw that baby as a human being. And when I read Christopher Hitchens' attack on Mother Teresa, it was the only time I felt really personally hostile to Hitchens. And I felt like saying, well, okay, buddy, you just tell me how many folks, how many poor, homeless, diseased people you have personally helped on the streets of Calcutta. And then you might be in a position to have an opinion about uh, about Mother Teresa, mm -hmm. you know that that argument. Um, I, I remember having an argument with a fairly militant atheist who was also, uh, you know, a socialist worker, was basically communist, and he said to me, "I'll give you this, David." He said, "I really will give you this." He said, "I don't know a single humanist society that runs a food bank," and he said, "You guys do." You that's know. right. Uh, that's right. There was a one. What was the Fabian Society? How many? How many hospices has the Fabian Society? 
And you know, Calcutta is a very confronting city. I don't know mm -hmm. if you've spent any time there, but it's a very, very yeah. confronting city. And um, the the level of street poverty, even today, when India is so much more developed, is mm -hmm. uh, is very confronting. Mother Teresa's key insight was to understand that poor people are people, that mm -hmm. they have lives, they have loves, ambitions, they have, uh, they have inner lives, they have moral choice, they have agency, and she wanted to help them achieve the human dignity to which they were entitled. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the idea that um, she just didn't live up to some standard of humanist uh, perfection or something uh, was absurd. And, you know, recently I was in a shopping centre where two of her nuns were sitting uh, with a, you know, with a donation box, and every person in the shopping centre went and made a donation. We were all of us shamed into doing something. And uh, not many Christians provoke that reaction uh, these days. You know, in my previous book, God is Good For You, I recounted meeting a, a young Jesuit a guy named Paul Mankowski who recently died. Wonderful, wonderful Jesuit, brilliant writer and intellectual. 30 or 40 years ago, I met him when he was a young man and he'd just done three months uh, with, Mother, with one of Mother Teresa's institutes in Calcutta. And I said to him, he's a very, very committed, muscular Christian. And I said to him, were you, were you at all attracted to leading that life? And he said, no, it was just too tough for me. I just couldn't do it. Uh, mm -hmm. It was all I could do to get through my three months. It was just too tough. Now, Mankowski underestimated himself to me because little did I know, every year for the rest of his life, he went back for several weeks every year uh, to work as a priest volunteer with Mother Teresa's uh, uh, nuns, and he did everything he could to help them. So he was braver than, than he gave himself credit for, but this guy boxed at Oxford. He taught Tony Abbott to box and he was a tough guy and he had no qualms in saying Mother Teresa and her nuns, they were much tougher than he was. In tough, by tough, I mean much more resilient, much more capable of giving themselves, much more capable of sustaining themselves in very difficult circumstances. And of course, that is the vision of Christ. That is a life lived for others, um, but also, uh, you know, a life of the love of God. Mother Teresa loved God and loved her fellow, uh, fellow human beings. And... Um, the first half of that, the humanists just find despicable. Yeah, you know, it's, it's fascinating because you mentioned something there, and I think this is important. I, I was going to ask why you wrote this chapter, um, because, you know, we live in a society which does a lot of virtue signaling. And, I, you know, there is a danger that Christians can sometimes say, hey, we do this, look and see how great we are. But in, in, in actual fact, it's of the essence of Christianity to give and to help the poor. I mean, it's not whether it's fashionable or not. And in the early church, you know, helping the poor was not fashionable. And the whole idea of equality and so on, I mean, you and I have mentioned before Laddie Siddentop's uh, making of the Western individual. And I, I think that what comes in Christianity, and it absolutely does not come out of Plato or the, you know, the Greek fathers or anything like that, uh, the Greek philosophers, is this idea of the dignity of every human being. And you're spot on with Mother Teresa, you know, whether it's a little deformed baby who, to be honest, many in our society would say, well, just let them die. It's gonna be miserable for them anyway. Yeah. Whereas she saw someone made in the image of God. And I do think that the whole of your chapter, it's not just as people think, Christians thinking, hey, I'm gonna go out and be good so people will like me or so I'll earn some merit. It's because they have this different, worldview. I mean, would you agree with that? 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, uh, Pastor Sammy Rodriguez put it to me that there's a vertical element of Christianity and a horizontal element. I mean, that's a very imperfect metaphor. Mm-hmm. But um, if you, there are two elements of Christianity, love God and love your fellow human beings. And neither one works without the other. If you get a very theological Christian who just has the doctrine of loving God, but is hostile or indifferent or mean to all his fellow human beings, well, that's, that's not Christian at all. That, that's terrible. That's not, the way, uh, that's not the way Christ behaved. On the other hand, if you gave someone who says, my ambition is to eradicate world poverty and I'm not interested in God, that's not Christian either. And in fact, that kind of impulse to charity, shorn of its Christianity, will end up doing some very ugly things. It will say, well, you know, deformed babies are inefficient and they take resources from, uh, uh, you know, that we could spend better elsewhere or el- elderly people with dementia are are uh, better off, um, you know, done away with or whatever. Christians must be concerned with the, for the poor. Jesus tells us that over and over again. This is a core ethical um, injunction. They also have to be concerned with God, so to speak. The two are, are absolutely interlinked for the Christian. There's no way. So monasteries, you know, the Benedictine monasteries, which started in the 6th century, were designed to allow monks to live a profoundly religious life. But they were also the first arms of social welfare because they would not return away a visitor. And it's in Benedict's rule that the poor are to be particularly welcomed. And so the monasteries were very often the only place in the sixth century where a poor person could get a free meal. And Mm -hmm. um, uh, so this has been the story of Christianity. Of course, often Christians don't live up to their ideals. It goes without saying, but that has been the core and the the whole idea of social welfare concern for the poor became an element of public policy because of christianity yeah i mean i would you know that famous monty python sketch is about what have the romans ever done for us you know (laughs) you know apart from the roads and the universities and all that kind of stuff and and i often say that when what have christians ever done for us and i say well you know there are many many things that i could list as well as individual acts of charities but particularly institutions so, for example, the modern social work system largely derived from Thomas Chalmers' St. John's experiment in Glasgow, which was copied all over the world. Um, there, the whole hospital system came out of the Greek church and the Byzantine church. You know, we, we've got records of hospitals being set up by, by Christians at that point. And there isn't a, a, an ancient European university that wasn't founded on Christian principles. So, I mean, it really, the record is outstanding, but you mention particular individuals. Do you want to tell us a little bit about um, Gemma Sissia? Is that how you pronounce her name? Yes, I've pronounced her name Sissia, but I, I don't Sia. really know which is correct. Uh, so Gemma is a wonderful woman. So this chapter is about three wonderful women. And um, in long Christian history, I think you could make a case that women have generally been better than blokes. Um, <laughs> And these three women are just fantastic. Gemma Cecilia, Frances Cantrell, and, um, and Jenny George. But Gemma is a wonderful woman. She's, uh, I think she was 50-odd when I spoke to her. She grew up in northern New South Wales, uh, north of Armadale, on a big, on a big uh, uh, rural property. Um, her family was not, neither rich nor poor. And she was a good Catholic Christian. And she saw... Um, you know, a live aid documentary or something and saw all the trouble and suffering in Africa. And she just had the idea that she wanted to help. And Gemma is a fantastically rambunctious, vigorous, 
Aussie country girl. You know, she she went to university. Luckily, she didn't make it into medicine. She went. She studied science instead. She went to every bachelor and spinster ball. It, you know, in the whole country in her undergraduate time, she possibly, you know, drank a fraction more alcohol than would be recommended in the in the perfect uh, medical charts. She was a wonderfully vigorous undergraduate and she always had a deep love of God, very religious family. And um, she thought she might join the nuns. And she said this to one of the nuns at her school who said to her, and she was much more theologically conservative than the nuns, and the nun that she told this to at school said, well, look, if you join, I'm leaving. I can tell you that. And she wanted from a young age to go to Africa and help. To make a long story short, she ended up in, um, in uh, Tanzania founding what, I, what have become three schools. She did this about 25 years ago. She didn't have a clue how to do it. She didn't have a dime of money. Her first donation was $10. At first, she just collected money and sent it to Africa. And then she found that the money was being misused and so on. So she went there and founded these schools. Now, she has devoted her whole life to this. There are now three schools, the schools of St. Jude. They exist on the basis that the kids have to be poor and have to have some academic ability. And so now thousands and thousands and thousands of kids have had this wonderful education. Now she has this, um, I'm sure a lot of Christians, David, would find this very, very heterodox. She has this great friendship with St. Jude because um, when she was a teenager, she was saying to her, her mum or, or her auntie, you know, these saints aren't much use. Um, you know, St. Christopher, the patron saint of travellers, didn't stop me from crashing my car. and saint anthony the patron saint of lost things never finds anything for me and her grandmother or aunt or somebody said you ought to try saint jude you know everybody confuses him with judas so nobody asks for his help on anything so um he's got plenty of free time and uh gemma now i'm not proposing this as a proper theological model or something i'm just recounting gemma's life so gemma regards saint jude as her best friend and she says he's never let her down so whenever she's been in trouble and he is the patron saint of hopeless and lost causes Whenever she's in real trouble, she says a prayer for St. Jude's intervention and he never lets her down. She needs a bus, the bus arrives, I mean for her school, the bus arrives. She needs a donation, the do donation arrives. When I interviewed her by Zoom, she had a statue of St. Jude on her table and she said, I have a deal with him. If I ever can't make the budget one year, I'm going to change the name of the school. And uh, these, and, and Gemma is just such a vigorous, lively person. She's not particularly theological. She's an Orthodox Christian, but she's not. She doesn't engage in mystical prayer or anything like that. She just, she said, she gets a wonderful feeling from helping people, and that's it. And that's sustained her. So this is not a glamorous life. She's married a wonderful guy, and she's got three fabulous kids and so on. But she's had, you know, um, malaria and bouts of sickness. She's been away when family members have died. She's. Uh, she pays herself some pitiful salary, you know, whereas she could earn a heap in a private school. Mm -hmm. And this has been her whole life. And I must say, I found at the end of my time uh, interacting with her, I read a little memoir she wrote and did a long discussion with her. She'd done something for me too. She made me proud to be a human being. I, I was happier about being a human being. Just, <laughs> just forgetting to know Gemma. Do you know, um, it, that's interesting because you know, when I hear the praying to St. Jude, all my Protestant antenna course, course, yeah. go, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, I also can't help thinking of the Beatles. Hey, Jude, you know, don't yeah, <laughs> yeah. take a sad song, make it better, you know. 
Um, but my, but I have to say that my view of God is that even if I think she's wrong in doing that, I would say that God overlooks that and takes that as a prayer to himself. And I would okay. rather have somebody like that whose who's concern and care for the poor and her Christianity is reflected in that than somebody who might be more theologically correct but does nothing. That doesn't seem to me. So whilst, it, you know, if I take those two things, I would say that Gemma's thing about St. Jude, I would regard that perhaps as an error, but it's a minor one compared with the more orthodox Christian from my perspective who never does anything for the poor. I mean, Paul, when he went to the apostles to explain what he was doing in Galatians chapter two, he recount, he says the only thing they said when they interrogate him basically said, you carry on doing what you're doing. The only thing they asked was that we would continue to remember the poor. And I think that's an important emphasis. Uh, that there's been a reaction against that mainly because of this kind of wishy-washy, um, I would say a non-radical uh, help for the poor that comes from the heart. Well, one thing I just, uh, you mentioned Tanzania. I've just read an amazing story about Andrew Browning, who is a surgeon from Sydney and who has spent his most of his life so far in Africa doing fistula repairs, which is a dreadfully serious condition for women who just and so and when you read it and you realize this guy could be making a fortune in, in medicine and he's not he's just out helping the poorest of the poor who with the you know with illness that's being caused by childbirth and often leads to their death and it's just breathtakingly marvelous and he's one of the world's premier fistula surgeons and i i was just stunned by that, I was reminded by that. Now, the other person, another person you did mention was Jenny George. Tell me a bit about Jenny George. I sure will. Just a final footnote on Gemma Cecilia. Mm -hmm. I should say in justice to her that um, seeking St. Jude's intervention is not the heart of her prayer life, of course. She goes to church every mm -hmm. Sunday and she says she says regular prayers. And mm -hmm. she, she told me that when she was young, she just found that life was better if she went to mass. So mm -hmm. she'd try to go to mass every day. and. She didn't, couldn't tell you exactly why, couldn't describe all the theology of it, but life was, she just had a better life if she went to mm -hmm. Mass every day. And indeed, she tried to be a nun for several years and worked out that, you know, her nature was not consistent with being a nun. And, it, of course, the point of view of my book is a non-denominational point of view. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't present this practice of seeking St. Jude's intervention as a practice that I'm either endorsing or disendorsing. The only argument I make about it is, you know, God is very big. God is very mm -hmm. diverse. God certainly does not embrace evil, but mm -hmm. life is untidy and Christians are very diverse. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, different Christians have different practices. And if they're not really uh, communing with the devil or anything, I think we can all sort of just take the attitude exactly as you took it, David, that, you know, maybe, okay, that's an error in her, but it's a benign error. And mm -hmm. And the integrity of her Christianity is evident in her life. So mm -hmm. it's not just the good things she does for the poor. It's also in her Christian life. You know, she's mm -hmm. brought up her sons to be God-fearing sons and all the rest of it. Now, Jenny George. Jenny George is um, a Melbourne Anglican uh, figure. Tremendous high academic qualifications. And um, she was the dean of the Melbourne University Business School. I met her at a little Christian dialogue that was held in Melbourne. And she was by such a vast distance, the smartest person in the room. 
you know, it was like the rest of us were were dishing up jello or something, and she was just a red-hot blade slicing through our blancmange. You know, it was as if we were a great formless blancmange, and she was just a piercing knife cutting through it. She's given up a business career and an academic career to run um, what is really a kind of a mental health agency which derived from Christian charities. And she is um, uh, theologically um, a very orthodox Anglican, rather high church and mm -hmm. um, full of fascinating theological views. She tries to integrate work with the love of God and she tries to integrate mental health with the love of God. One thing she said to me is that suffering a mental health problem does not absolve you from the moral demands of right and wrong. So she's tremendously compassionate to people with mental health problems, but she's not saying you can't eliminate the categories of right and wrong by just treating every behavior as a disease, you know, and having a mental health problem doesn't license you. I mean, I'm expressing this far more crudely than she did. Her whole life, again, has been a consistent living out of her Christian commitment. So she and her husband, husband's a minister, they give away a large part of their of their um, combined income uh, to charity because that's the thing that uh, that Christians do. She comes from a, um, a brethren background and her father did something astonishing like put a pro-Christian pamphlet in every door, every letterbox in the South Island of, of New Zealand. Uh, and she went from that to being high church, but she sort of stopped at the high church, the Anglican high church. She didn't move any further. The parish that she and her husband um, live in and work in has grown by, you know, fourfold or something since they took it over. And she's just a wonderfully uh, gifted individual who has chosen to make all those gifts available to God and therefore available to human service. And uh, without any great fuss, without seeking any publicity. I mean, she's so clever. She could be a media star if she wanted to be, but that's just not, not what she's interested in. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you say she's now high Anglican, but like me, she grew up in the Plymouth Brethren. I bet you didn't know that. I, was, I didn't know you were a Plymouth Brethren man. Yeah, it's, it's the largest church in the world, ex-Brethren, you know. <laughs> uh, it's, a, lot, it's a lot of them end up Anglicans in my a lot. Well, yeah, a lot end up, well, a lot end up in, in lots of different things. I know I find it curious that they they're very motivated, and I do think that they're, you know, in churches where there's a great emphasis on the clergy as all as though the clergy are doing it for us, this kind of practical Christianity, but at the same time deeply spiritual. So I think it's important, you know, to, to say that you're stressing those things. I mean, these three women, it is quite amazing. Now, uh, Jenny Cantrell with the Culture Project, I was. I'm going to read this to you because I think we should discuss this for the, the, the wee bit of time we have left. It says this, um, at one level it's easy enough for Christians to proclaim their countercultural message, but doing so in the traditional way is frequently unsuccessful, for the circumstances they confront are ones in which the culture, or large parts of it, have been immunised against the Christian message, often against any Christian utterances at all. Traditional Christian language is either not understood or has been radically deauthorized. In coping with that or reacting to it, Christians can easily go to the other extreme 
and speak to the culture in such soothing, inoffensive and approved contemporary terms that their message finally has no substance, no distinctiveness at all. It neither challenges nor helps the culture. To find an entry point in a contemporary culture for Christianity and a language with which to speak effectively to today's young people and then to tell them about the timeless Christian truths in all their splendour, fulfilment and challenge, that's a remarkable achievement. And you're saying that that's what, what, what Jenny has done. And I entirely agree with you because I would argue I'm now in a position where I, I say this when I go to schools and I speak in quite a lot of schools. I say, guys, you guys are now what in my day was the Trotskyist workers <laughs> radical alliance in, in you know, university or whatever. You are on the fringe rebels, but you can speak to our culture in, in the language that the culture understands. So, um, I mean, I, thought, I, th I just thought that was a great paragraph and thank you for it. Thank you, David. So uh, it's Fra Francis Cantrell. Francis. Francis. All right. Yeah. yeah um, Sorry. So she's a wonderfully impressive young woman. She's the youngest person I think I interviewed in the book. I think she might have been twenty-seven or something when I interviewed her. And what what chutzpah and energy it takes for a young person in their twenties to found an entire movement. She calls it the Culture Project. It's taken inspiration from similarly named. Uh, initiatives overseas, but it's not formally connected to them. It's completely autonomous mm -hmm. Australian. They run a little sort of um, residential studies program where people raise a salary sacrifice amount. So they raise from friends, acquaintances, donors and so on, enough to cover their salary for a year. And they live in and they study hard. Uh, they're, they're much taken up with uh, the late Pope John Paul II's theology of the body. And they go out where young people are and say to them, you are worth much more than the culture is telling you. You are mm -hmm. a unique, divine, immortal human being, and you are possessors of wonderful human dignity, and you are entitled to love, and you are required to express love for other people. So they go where the young people are. So she recounts to me an experience of going to school this week on the Gold Coast and being kind of confronted by two pretty wild young men who are right out there singing the most terrible death celebrating sadistic evil rap lyrics and mm -hmm. she's quite a demure young person she certainly she said to me she didn't feel any sense of danger or anything like that there were some of her friends in in the vicinity but she spoke mm -hmm. to these guys for hours and one of them wrote to her later on and said you know you saved me from suicide that night and uh she just told them of the hope of Jesus, the promise of Jesus, and the worth of their own lives. The Culture Project works in schools. Uh, it says that it, as young people, are the right people to give this message because they are also the people who need this message. So they have, mm -hmm. like St. Paul, a sense of their own fallibility and sinfulness. And uh, what is interesting about this movement, I think, and terrifically optimistic is, it's not following any traditional church form. Nothing wrong if you did follow a church form. That'd mm -hmm. be great if you had a local parish group and it was flourishing. That's absolutely fabulous. But what they've done is they've seen a need and the form has followed the function. They've just mm -hmm. worked out how to organize themselves. They recruit, they raise a little bit of money. They've got a very deep sense. They've got chaplains, you know, wise uh, uh, theologically literate ministers and so on who give them advice about their theology and so on. They've got a deep understanding of human love in the Christian tradition. And they just go and talk to young people exactly where they are. So they ask them questions, not 
not like even what is the meaning of your life, but what do you think love is? Tell mm -hmm. me what you want. What do you want to do in the next year? What do you want out of life? Something like that. That's where they start the conversation. And, um, you know, they may not change the whole direction of our culture, but they've changed the direction of a number of human lives. And that's mm -hmm. a tremendous success in itself. And that, I think, is a characteristic Christian response. You look through history, there have been so many Christian movements like this that have just seen a need in the society they're in, have worked out how to translate, you know, the message of the Gospels into the culture of their time and have taken it from there. So all three of these women, I feel so wildly inferior to all three of them. And they are, they are so powerful in their different ways, all three of them. And just taking in their, in their stride obstacles which you would think would be insuperable. You know, imagine trying to go to school this week in the Gold Coast and preach about uh, Jesus. Imagine, you know, try, you know, giving up a great academic career and vast amounts of money in the private sector. Imagine spending your life in Tanzania and getting malaria and, you know, living for a long time in a Bunnings tent in a garden and so forth. Things that we, you know, I would find impossible for 10 minutes. They've embraced more or less for a lifetime. And they do this for the love of Jesus. So mm -hmm. it's worth, I think they're worth hearing about. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I have no value added my, myself to offer about them. I just think they themselves are worth knowing about. I think they are. And I think you, the point is made extremely well that what you've done, rather than give us a whole bunch of facts and figures about how many charities. So um, my understanding is that 19 out of the top 20 charities in Australia are basically either Christian or of Christian origin, which yes. is very similar to the UK. Um, and I mean, it's not to say that, you know, others don't do charitable work, but I'm just saying it's, it's, it is disproportionate. Absolutely. And, and it's, and it's not that they're better people. It's because of their faith in Christ. So you, you mentioned these three women, I'm thinking of someone like my mother-in-law who's been dead for a good many years, but, you know, a hard life in the island of Lewis, 1930s and all the rest of it. And, and yeah, a godly, gracious woman. I mean, so many of these women came through very difficult circumstances that today we'd be saying, oh, no, no, they need compensation. They need counselors. Yeah. They need, you know, yeah. and what sustained them? What kept them? It was, it's not that they were weak. It's, it was, it's the opposite. They were given enormous strength through their faith in Christ. And I mean, obviously that applies to to men as well although i think it's interesting that you do mention three particular women and i love the last one as well the because it's all very well what's the what's, what's the is it the the oxfam saying that to give a man a fish is what is good but to teach him how to fish and i think you know uh francis Contrell that young people need hope and to have somebody challenging them and making them think and so on. I, I, I think that's wonderful. Greg, thank you again. Thank you for this chapter. Um, if you're okay, you. we'll come back again in a, in, a, in a couple of weeks and we will look at light and shadow in the hearts of leaders. Thanks so much, David. A real joy to be with you and just so much infinitely more enjoyable than Vladimir Putin, Ukraine and the Chinese Communist Party. I can't tell you. So thank you so much, David. Great to talk. All right. God bless you, mate. See you.